sermon text for this morning is out of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 8, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 12. It's a longer passage, so I will not be opening the sermon with a reading of the passage, but I'll read much of the passage throughout the message, so you will really benefit from having your Bible open to uh, this passage. So many things can be used either for evil or for good in life, right? Someone walks into a large church gathering with a rifle intending to do great harm. But that person is stopped by someone using a handgun with an intent to protect others. What's the difference? Someone logs into their computer with the intent of looking at pornography or aimlessly scrolling through social media, while someone else uses their computer to write an encouraging email or to check on someone who is sick. What's the difference? A doctor prescribes drugs to a patient who does not need them simply because the patient wants to feed an unhealthy addiction to narcotics. Another doctor prescribes the same medication to a patient who has been suffering with chronic pain and finds in these narcotics much needed relief. What is the difference? Clearly the difference is not in the thing itself. Guns don't kill people, computers don't act immorally, and drugs don't make people addicted. But then what does? What is the difference between a virtue and a vice? What is the difference between using things for good and using them for evil? I recognize that this question is quite complex. And I don't want to give a simple answer to this. But at the heart of the matter... There is the issue of intent. Intent. Sin is often found not in our actions, but in the intentions behind our actions. I've brought this verse up to you before. I bring it up to you again. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God is concerned with our transformation, but his concern is that we are transformed internally from the heart, from our intentions, proclivities, and inclinations. He doesn't want us to simply obey him, He wants us to want to obey Him. There's a difference. As we continue in our study through Ecclesiastes, we remember that this book was written by the preacher, king of Israel, who set set out to examine life as he saw it under the sun with his senses. His conclusion? Always vanity. All things on earth are disappointing and frustrating. Why? 
because they ultimately don't satisfy. The preacher restricts his worldview to the material world, to that which can be observed by the senses. And indeed, if all that there is is the material world, only those things that we can experience through our senses, life is vain. But occasionally, the, preach, the preacher lets out glimpses of hope. He reminds us that there is life over the sun. There is a God. And his final conclusion is that the fear of God and the obedience of his commandments is what causes us to flourish. Ultimately, there is a God. And our final destination is eternity with him. So there is a sense in which the book of Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher creates a vacuum. A vacuum of eternity. And by creating that vacuum, he draws us into eternity. He draws our desires to eternity, to the things of eternal life, to the things of eternal matter, so that we can realize that if we live for this world, we are to be pitied. But if we live for eternity, we have great hope. We've considered important themes like work, time, the tongue, Today we turn to a theme of great importance in the Bible. Today we consider wealth. Today we consider money, possessions. Wealth is a tool, just like those things that I mentioned in the beginning, that can be used either for good or for evil. Wealth is a tool that can be used for earthly purposes or it can be used for the glory of God. The difference, the intent of our hearts. Money, the Bible says, is not the root of all evils, right? You know this, but the love of is. This means if you're thinking, I'm not wealthy, so this sermon is not for me, I would advise you to listen carefully. It is possible to be poor and love money it is possible not to have wealth and fall into the same sins of the wealthy money can be used for great good and it can be used for great evil as well what is the difference the difference is intention what we intend to do with our money will ultimately determine if money is for us a vice or a virtue so how do we cultivate, okay, this is a guiding question for today. How do we cultivate a right attitude in our hearts towards money and wealth? Well, this question, right, I'm going to try to answer it in two ways. Uh, so before I get to that, this question is the question at the heart of the passage. Money will be a blessing to us if we find joy. In whatever the Lord provides for us. Money will be a blessing if we find joy. 
and whatever the Lord provides for us. The section of Ecclesiastes is very proverbial. You're going to see that it reads very much like the book of Proverbs. So some thoughts seem scattered and random, but they're not. So I'm going to try to combine themes together as we look at this passage. So we're going to have two points in our message today, but our first point is really going to have many sub-points, okay? So first, we'll consider the vanity of wealth, the vanity of wealth, and then we'll consider the riches of joy. So consider with me the vanity of wealth. The argumentation that the preacher uses here is kind of like a mosaic. Uh, pieces that seem disconnected, but when viewed from a certain distance, they make a coherent picture. We, we want, he wants us to see his big point. Wealth, apart from God, is vain. So the vanity of wealth, that's what he wants us to see. It is important for us to keep one point in mind as we work through these several sub-points. Wisdom literature, we're considering this, right? Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is filled with generalizations. So some of the points that we're going to look at, you're going to say, well, that's not always true. The preacher is not concerned with that. The preacher is not concerned with the exceptions. Wisdom literature teaches broad concepts without getting sidetracked with small explanations about other things. Wisdom literature teaches us principles rather than promises, right? So there are certain principles in Scripture, right? So for example, so instruct your children or raise your children the way they should walk. And as a principle, when, when they grow old, they will not stray from that. Is that a promise? It's not a promise, but it's a principle. We, we should hold on to principles in faith, but never make them promises. So what's the first principle that we see here? First, we see that wealth can promote oppression. Th that's a warning, right? It's a warning. Be careful. Wealth can promote oppression. And the way we see oppression in the text is through governmental bureaucracy. Governmental bureaucracy. Look at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. So what's the concern here? Why, why start with this? Because government workers are often busy with government matters. So they squandered, squander the resources of the people. Don't be amazed when you see oppression of the poor because there is a whole hierarchical structure in government that keeps government officials from doing what they need to do. Help the poor. Uphold justice and righteousness. 
I think the Bible is making an argument here for the benefits of a small government for the people. God cares about governments are run. Governments are not evil in and of themselves. God establishes government in his own word. But God cares about how governments are run. There's a right way to run government. There's a wrong way to run government. When government serves itself, that is evil. It neglects the poor. It neglects those who need help. But when government is turned towards the people, then that is a government that is good, that administers the money of the people well. I love the phrase, taxation is theft. But it's not true. The Bible instructs Christians to pay their taxes, right? Because it is right, because government established by God. But the Bible also holds government, right, up to godly standards. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, right? Helps us think biblically about this. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, first clause says, God, the supreme Lord and king of the world, hath ordained civil magistrates, that's government, to be under him, over the people, for what purpose? For his own glory and for the public good. Christians historically have had a sound understanding of the role of of, of government. This is it. Government must exist to bring glory to God and serve the public well. When government is big and busy, it concerns, it, it focuses its concerns in itself. And the people suffer. People are taxed, taxed but their taxes go to support the heavy structure of government. This is not what God wants. Look at verse 9. What should government be concerned with? Now, I want to recognize this is a verse of difficult interpretation. If you get 10 Hebrew scholars to translate this verse from the Hebrew, you will get 10 different translations. So I am trusting the ESV here. And what is the, what, what is the role of government? Look at verse 10. A king committed to cultivated fields. In other words, a king that is committed to the financial flourishing of his land and of his people. Indy and I have several relatives that have moved here from Cuba in the past several years. And you know what they tell us? They often tell us that if you work for the Communist Party in Cuba, you eat better than everyone else. That's a government that is not concerned with the cultivation of the fields. It's a government that is concerned with filling the belly of its own people, of the, of the people that subscribe to its own government. This is terrible. This is ungodly. So this gives us a vision of politics, doesn't it? We should promote and pray for a government that is committed to the fields that are filled, cultivated, that people are able to work with their hands and produce something and gain a reward for their work. 
We should promote and pray for a government that enables the poor to work and receive a fair and honest salary. But thinking beyond government now, we see that wealth can also bring about inconvenience. Inconvenience. So let's consider this. How so? How can wealth bring about inconvenience? Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their own owner but to see them with his eyes? So wealth brings a lot of benefits. We're not denying that. But it also brings a lot of burdens. Goods may increase, but so do the mouths that look to feed from these goods. When Peter Parker, right, is trying to figure out what to do with his newly acquired spider superpowers, his uncle, Ben, reminds him, with great power comes great responsibility. And this is what the text is saying. Wealth brings about privileges, but it does not come void of obligations. Right? The wealthy person who is responsible for the wealth of others, the business owner who is responsible for that business, that that business will run well so that others may have their work, is not a person who is often free in his own decisions and in his own mind. Proverbs 15.6 says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than a great treasure and trouble with it. So really, the preacher here is trying to speak truth into our hearts. He's trying to speak wisdom into our heart. He's saying, look, you're going to feel tempted to think that your problems are going to be resolved when you have money. But that is not true. Money brings about privileges and, 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 and great benefits, but it brings about problems as well. This is why verse 12 says, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, right? The business owner that goes, uh, uh, that goes home and thinks about his business does not sleep as well as the, hourly, as the hourly paid employee. Because he goes to work, he makes his money, he goes home and does not take his work home. So he sleeps. Meanwhile, his boss is tossing around in his bed thinking, will I make payroll this week? Is this business sustainable? Have I gambled my future away and my family's future away in this business? The worker never thinks those things. But the business owner does. Friends, we often have the false assumptions that our troubles can are caused by the lack of resources, the lack of money, if we could just have a little bit more money. We suffer because we lack funds. But money always comes with troubles. It can be very helpful, but it can destroy us. It can destroy our families. It can destroy our ministry as well. So do not set your heart on money. Do not think that money is your savior. Do not have hope in money. 
Money is also very volatile. Volatile. So I want you to consider this. Volatile is another way of saying vanity, isn't it? Uh, uh, so uh, vanity, we studied this word in depth, right, in the first week, comes from the Hebrew havel. It's vapor, mist, breath. This is what volatility means. Things that are volatile, they evaporate in the air. The same is true of money. Have you ever noticed that it's hard to earn money and easy to spend? Right? The famous 1%, the wealthiest people in the world, is not a fixed group. People join that group and leave that group all the time. So in verse 13, the preacher suggests a little story. He says, this is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. This means that riches were kept by a wealthy person to the point that these riches started working against him. We're not totally sure. We're not told what exactly happened. But this person from verse 13 loses all his money. Look at verse 14. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Perhaps he invested it poorly. Perhaps he spent it all. Perhaps he gambled it. We don't know. He had a son, right? And at a point he had many things, but now he has nothing to give to his son. So he's doomed to die the same way he was born, naked and with nothing. And the volatility of money is terrible because if you've never had money, you don't have to go through the experience of losing money, right? But if you've had money and you lost money, that's, that's an added challenge in life, isn't it? So this man lives his day in darkness. Picture of loneliness, vexation, sickness, and anger. You see that? Verse 17. Why? Because he trusted money. But the money he had did not prove to be stable enough for him to rest his trust on. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in riches will, not may, not can, not might, whoever trusts in riches will fail, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. There is an assurance that those who trust in riches will fail, even if they die rich, right? Because they put their trust in something other than God. This is not a possibility, but a sure consequence. Why? Because money gives an impression of trustworthiness. Money gives us the impression that God has favor on us, but it is just that, an impression. Those who trust in riches are pitted against the righteous. Do you see that in the, in the psalm? Whoever trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous, right? Riches, right, are, are uh, trusting in riches is an unrighteous business. This is at the heart of this message. 
Riches are not the problem, but when we trust in them, they become the problem. Why? Because we're supposed to trust in God and not in money. And we cannot do both at the same time. You cannot have two masters. You have to trust one. Is it going to be money or is it going to be God? We, hear that, we heard this earlier in the service, right? Both read and sung. Psalm 62, verse 11. Put not trust in extortion. Set not vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase money, set not your heart on them. Why? Because very often the psalm gives us the conclusion in the first verse, right? Look at this. Why? Psalm 62, verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. Why? Because... From him comes my salvation. The psalmist knows that riches don't save. The richest people on this earth, if they do not know Jesus, they will not be able to buy their salvation. So do not try to be like them. Instead, seek to be like the righteous. Riches come and go, but God is always the same. There is a place where the streets are paved with gold. And that will forever stand as a reminder to us that what is under the sun is volatile. It is ephemeral. It is vanity. And the things of value on this earth are of little to no value in eternity. These are the things that we step on in heaven. That place belongs to those who trust in God. Those who trust in Him for our salvation. Those who understand that our biggest problem is not that we don't have enough money. Or that we need more resources. Or that we need an improved economy. Heaven is for those who understand that what we need is to be saved from our sins. Forgiveness is free simply because Jesus, who is righteous, purchased it for us. So money can't buy it. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. What else do we need? We need to be redeemed. And how do we accomplish redemption? We don't. It's accomplished by us, by the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That's true wealth. Which He lavished on us. So Jesus doesn't just give us a little bit of His riches. He lavishes us with His riches which is the forgiveness of our sins. So, friend, I have good news for you today. If you are in Christ, you are already rich beyond measure. You do not need to chase money and wealth. Colossians 2, 3, In Christ, in whom are hidden all, not some, not most, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you are in Christ... You've already accessed all the wealth that you will ever need. So perhaps you have noticed that your pursuit of earthly riches have not satisfied your hearts. And this is because you're pursuing riches in the wrong place. Pursue Christ. And all that is His will be yours in eternity. Finally, let's consider one more thing. Wealth is also unfulfilling unfulfilling in verse 2 of chapter 6 
preacher tells us another story. A man to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and honors so that he lacks nothing and all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. The mere fact that one has money does not mean that he will enjoy money. Money can't buy happiness. Before I went to seminary, I taught private music lessons at home, uh, at, at the home of the students in some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Miami. Let me tell you something. When you're wealthy in Miami, you are wealthy. And I clearly observed this. I would enter some of the most beautiful homes I have ever seen week in and week out. And yet, hardly ever would I see the owners enjoying their homes. The busyness, the preoccupations, the demands of their wealth kept them from enjoying their wealth. That is vain. That is vanity. In verse 3, the preacher says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, a thousand years twice over, even so, if he trusts money, he may live all of these years with great dissatisfaction. Verse 7 through 9 deal with the appetite of the wealthy, which is never satisfied, always chasing new experiences, new flavors, new sights, while the poor is often very satisfied with the simple things of life. The preacher brings this assessment of the wealthy to a conclusion in verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. If wealth doesn't satisfy, then who knows? Why are we pursuing these things? We don't even know if they're going to satisfy us. So it's a very doubtful conclusion. And it's a conclusion that should drive us to say, this is not worth my life. Who knows? So what is good for men? If riches don't ultimately fulfill, if wealth is not all that it seems to be, not all that glitters is gold, then what is truly good in life? The preacher says, who knows? Who knows what is good? He's really presenting this as a rhetorical question. And the answer that is implied here is nobody knows. We don't know what we're doing with our lives. We're looking to the wealthy and we're thinking that's what we need to be like. But we don't know anything. These things are not sure. These things are not sure foundations for our lives. We shouldn't pursue things that we don't know are even good. But this is not the whole story. The preacher doesn't always imply lack of knowledge. The preacher actually knows what is good. He tells us back in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, which I skipped earlier. But now let's go back to these verses. And I want you to notice that these verses function as a hinge in our passage today 
where warnings against wealth are given, but these verses tell us what is good. So we, we consider we consider the, the we consider the vanity of wealth first. Now in these verses, let us consider the riches of joy. The riches of joy. So thus far I've made an argument for the vanity and the futility of wealth. So what is the solution? Should we all become like the Franciscans and take a vow of poverty? Should we reject wealth, money, and riches? Maybe. Maybe for some, that is what we ought to do. But I think the Bible makes no requirement of this. The Bible does not require us to embrace poverty as a solution to the vanity of wealth. The preacher does not seem to think that being wealthy is intrinsically sinful. On the contrary, he sees something good in wealth. He says that in verse 18 of chapter 5. He says, behold, this behold here is telling us there's something new coming, right? Something different. What I have seen to be good, he still rely on his senses, but he is also He's also making mention of God here. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Remember this word enjoyment. In all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy. Remember this word enjoy them, and to accept his lot, and to rejoice. Remember this word in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life, because God, God keeps him occupied with joy. Joy in his heart. Well, this is a very positive statement, isn't it? I mean, it stands in stark contrast to the rest of the passage. And what is the difference here? What is the difference? Because we talked about the wealthy then, and now we're talking about the wealthy still. What is the difference? And the difference is this repeated word. It comes to us in different forms. The word is joy. It is repeated four times in just these three verses. For the preacher, the remedy for vanity, for the vanity of wealth, is not poverty, but joy. Isn't this good? That God will be concerned with our joy, with our ability to enjoy the good things of life. For the preacher, the issue is not so much in what money can buy, but that when we experience it, we experience with a joyful heart. Think of it this way. If you're a parent, do you try to only give the worst possible gifts to your children? No. You want to give them the best. And once you give them a good gift, how do you expect them to respond to it? With joy, right? 
And what does their joy create in you? Joy. The same is true of God. God finds joy in us finding joy. So this is why God gives us good things. It's not so that we'll hoard them. It's not so that we'll build a kingdom for ourselves. God gives us things so that we would experience joy. And God finds joy in our joy. This is why the heart matters. This is why the intentions matter. So if you have good things, enjoy them without guilt. Your joy brings glory to God. That's the antidote to the vanity of wealth. God does not want us to be ascetics. He wants us to be filled with gladness in this life. So, perhaps, you can afford a boat. And if you do, enjoy it. And don't forget to invite me. I'm kidding. I can't stand boats. So don't invite me. I'll go just to please you. And I'll be miserable the whole time. Perhaps you have extra money. And the ability to go on vacation. Now you can invite me to that. No, I'm kidding. And the ability to go on vacation. Enjoy it. Perhaps you are able to eat at fancy restaurants, drive nice cars, visit expensive places. The Bible does not require you to deprive yourself from these pleasures. Do not feel guilty about enjoying the good things of life. Why? Because your joy brings glory to God. Psalm 35, verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the, if you have the King James, you have the word prosperity, the welfare of his servants. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, enjoy life, because the gifts that you have, have come from God. But there's another thing that I want you to see from these verses here. Joy has a source, which is God. God gives us wealth for joy, for enjoyment. Listen to James 1.17. Every good gift, right, again, and every perfect gift is from above, coming from down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, shadow due to change. So I am simply saying I have to enjoy the good things. I'm not simply saying I have to enjoy the good things of life. I'm saying that you have to enjoy the good things of life as a gift from God recognizing God, acknowledging Him in all your ways. As David is preparing, right, the temple, the things for the temple, in order for his son Solomon to build it, so he just looks at all that the Lord has provided, and he says in 1 Chronicles 29, 12, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and your hand and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. So we are to enjoy the good things of life. But as we recognize that the source of all these good things is God himself. So do not celebrate the gifts without first worshiping the gift giver. So how do we do this? 
How do we receive wealth with joy, recognizing God as the source of all riches? So let me give you two words of application before we finish. First, consider contentment. Contentment. In, in so many ways, we all experience wealth, don't we? We all have things we can enjoy. That's, that's what wealth is. Some of us have more than others. Some of, some, some of us have more, others have less. But what matters is that we find satisfaction in what the Lord has given us. That we can say, the Lord has given me enough. We're not to be chasing wealth. We are to work hard and to enjoy life. But ultimately, what matters is that we are content with what the Lord has supplied. Wealth is never enough, but God is enough. Philippians 4, 12 and 13. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In, in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So are you content with what the Lord has provided for you in your life? Do you look at others and think, if only I, have what they, I had what they have? Are there things in life that you couldn't live without? Are there material things in your life that, that if God were to take away from you, you would struggle to find contentment? Second, I want you to consider the word generosity. Generosity. If God has been generous towards you, be generous towards others. The Bible is not against the rich. But the Bible instructs the rich very specifically and carefully about how to handle their wealth. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18. As for the rich in this present age, it's interesting that he says that in this present age, right? Because in the age to come, we'll all be rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides with us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and, listen to this, to be generous and ready to serve. So if you've been given wealth, Give it away. Give it to others. Give it wisely and generously. Do not be lackadaisical about your support of the local church. Give towards the gospel ministry in this, in this church. This is your first ministerial obligation. Give to others. Give to your brothers and sisters in this church. Give it to fellow believers. Give its words our benevolence fund that goes out to help those in need among us. Share your goods by opening your home. Be hospitable. May your home be like a hospital for souls. Refresh the souls of the saints. Friends, ultimately we are called to be generous in all of us, because when we are generous, we reflect the heart of God. Our generosity must be a response to the generosity of God. And how generous is God? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him for, up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, God did not hold on to his son. Instead, he gave him in order for him to come and live in our place and die for us. This is the generosity of God. What is his most treasured possession? The Father possesses the Son and the Spirit, and the Father sends the Son. For what? To die for us. We who are selfish and self-centered, who are concerned with our own wealth, who are concerned with our own kingdom. And God gives his Son, and he gives his life on the cross. The Father gives, the Son gives. Friends, this is a generous God that we have. And he's able to transform our hearts if we simply will confess, Lord, I am sorry because I have lived for the things of this world. I have lived for wealth and possessions. I've lived for my own career. I've tried to build my own kingdom. And yet I look at you and you give. You give that which is most cherished by you. You give your own son. Christ gives his life. The spirit comes and gives us himself. And did you notice what Paul is saying here? The God who gives these things, is it too hard for him to give us what we need? If, he give, if God the Father gave the Son, will he not also freely give us all things? The answer is, of course he will. So friend, would you trust in God rather than your ability to generate income? Would you trust in God rather than your bank accounts? Because God is generous. He gave us His Son. And along with Him, He will give us everything that we need. Perhaps today, you need to recognize that you have never come to Christ. That you have never turned to Him in faith and repentance. That you've had other gods in your life. That you've trusted your retirement account. That you've trusted your business. That you've trusted your wage. That you've trusted these things. But you need to forsake these things and come to Christ and say, I want to trust you. I need you to forgive my sins so that I can be saved. And if you do, God will transform your heart. And you will see wealth in a whole different light. And you will use it for his glory and for the good of others. Would you pray with me? Father, how we need our hearts to be transformed and changed. Lord, thank you because you're a generous God. Lord, if we're here today, it's because you have provided our daily bread every day. We thank you for that. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you for your kindness, Lord, and help us reflect you. Help us see the great depths of generosity that you lavished on us by giving us your very son. Help us see the generosity of Christ that died on the cross. Help us see the generosity of the spirit that comes and indwells in us. Help us, Lord, see you as the generous God that you are and help us do the same with what you have provided for us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.